For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in the newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. What if a change in classroom practice could lead to change in reading outcomes? What should reading instruction include to ensure all students have the opportunity to succeed? What does cognitive science tell us about learning to read? And why aren't those learnings applied in our classrooms? Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert from Amplify Education. Join us every two weeks as we talk with Science of Reading experts to explore what it takes to transform our classrooms and develop confident and capable readers. Today, we talk with Lois Letchford, author of Reversed, a Memoir. We discuss her book, which documents the joint journey of her and her son, who went from a failing first grade experience to successful completion of a PhD from Oxford University. Our discussion centers around the sometimes desperate search for answers and accidental wins that ultimately led to academic success. We hope you enjoy. Well, Lois, thank you so much for joining us today. It's just really a pleasure to have you on our Science of Reading podcast um, in a little bit different content than what we've been doing in our first few podcast episodes. Um, So what I'd like you to do is just give our listeners a brief overview of this book that we're going to be talking about, this book called Reversed. A memoir. Hello, Susan. I'm delighted to be here. The overview is very simple, and that it is my son failed first grade in 1994. And it's his journey via three continents to be successful academically and eventually achieve a PhD in Applied Mathematics from Oxford University. It sounds very simple, but it might not have been easy. Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) That's, well, I think the part that I find most interesting about my son's journey is that everything happened by accident, not design. That's interesting. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But this whole idea of spanning these years, spanning these continents, going from a failed first grade experience to a PhD, that's pretty powerful. Yes, yes, I I find it incredible. Yeah, and um, I will just say for our listeners, and we talked about this before we started the recording, is I connected with your memoir on a personal level, just like from the first few pages. And so for anyone that's out there listening, that's had, 
you know, a personal experience, had a student in their classroom or anybody that struggled to really learn and be successful, um, I think this is a, a great book to pick up um, in, in terms of connecting on that uh, emotional and you can do it kind of level. Um, let's start with uh, sort of in the beginning, in the first chapter already, as you're setting up this, you know, this whole journey, you actually mentioned the fact that you were thankful that you had the opportunity to be a stay-at-home mom, um, hoping that you could do things with your children so that they wouldn't struggle in school like you struggled in school. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The stay-at-home mum part happened again, you know, because of circumstances. My husband had finished his PhD in Oxford and we returned to our home in Brisbane and I, we came back with our 18-month-old. And so how do you go back into the workforce when you've got an 18-month-old, you're out of the system? And, you know, it's the dilemma that I think mothers face. And so I just stayed at home and we had enough money to survive, but I didn't then have enough money for childcare and retraining and all of the other complications that happen when you start back into the workforce. So I thought, oh, it's just easier to stay at home. Yeah. So that was it. But I hadn't acknowledged then how much I struggled in school. But you know, oh. I, could, I could help my boys more by just being at home and it's less stressful than having to get out of the house at six or seven or whatever time you have to go. Sure, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then when did you, you said you didn't like really understand how much you struggled in school. When did you start to understand that looking back, wow, I did struggle in school? Age 39, teaching my second son, Nicholas, who was age seven, and I'm sitting in a bookshop and looking at a list of possible things that would describe dyslexia and there were 20 things and I had about 18 of the 20 things. Wow. What, what, how did that, I mean, just personally, how did that make you feel when that, that aha moment happened for you? It's, it's a little bit of a shock and then re that's why I couldn't do it. But the interesting part was this was in 1995 as I'm sitting and I'm teaching Nicholas at home and my mother was with me. And she had just turned 70 and she said to me, Lois, I needed help in school like you were giving Nicholas. And it's my mother too that had struggled. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That, yeah, that's, I'm getting a little goosebumps right now just <laughs> thinking about that. Um, uh, because it, I mean, we know that, right? We know dyslexia tends to, to Run in work families. in families. Yeah. yeah. But yeah how like how frustrating that must have been to think that maybe she thought she couldn't do it and you thought you couldn't do, couldn't it, do it and yeah never really made that connection that's and at age 39 that's interesting interesting yes. that you remember that moment when you discovered that yes yes sitting yeah. in a bookshop reading that book and what was interesting is when my mother said that then you go back to your life and look at all the things that she was doing and my mother was brilliant at making dresses and she would draw a, a pattern on the back of an envelope you know a dress design on the back of an envelope turn around and cut it i know what to do wow was what yeah just you know she was brilliant at that and then she also taught sunday school and she always taught Sunday school using a storyboard. She would cut out pictures to represent people. 
and how much she was a visual learner. And it's interesting how these things stick with you. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing, amazing. Well, let's get back to um, yeah. you know, sort of the focus of this book, which was Nicholas, your, your second son. Um, and you, is it three children, is that right? Yes, yes, yeah. Um, and I, I think the, the, the thing that's amazing to me is your sort of description of Nicholas in his first day of first grade, and it's pretty vivid. Um, what do you recall about that day? It was really difficult because I knew Nicholas was behind and I knew he was uncertain about going to school. But what choices do you have? And we took him to school and he didn't want to sit in his seat. Hmm. And he was really terrified about doing that. And we left him sitting in his seat and he was like a frozen human being sitting there. And I was worried from that moment on. Uh, would I, Do you recall that even the first day, because you had a younger child, is that right? So you yes. went home and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we and, were not allowed to bring younger children to school to um, watch our other children and help in schools. You know, they had a policy of parents' help, but you had to be an individual, not with an individual with a second child. Or oh, a okay. Something. So that made it difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I bet that did make it difficult. And then and then to walk away knowing that this was going to be a hard day, but you know, you you don't want to communicate that to Nicholas either, right? You want to be That's positive right. and yeah. 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 So you can do I, it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to actually read um uh, a passage from the chapter called The Disaster Compounds. And this I think is actually day six. So we've made it through six days. Uh, with Nicholas in first grade and his teacher wanted to talk to you. And so you went in to talk to the teacher and ask how Nicholas was doing. And just let me read a few lines here. She says, oh, he is exceedingly tough for me. She says, as she massages her forehead, it's impossible. She bursts out as she leans back in the chair all the other children are settling quickly and he cannot do a single thing. And further on, she says, he doesn't follow any directions, is almost as though he is completely deaf. What were you thinking at that point? And, and how were you responding to, you know, this teacher who's a professional in the classroom, who you've entrusted your, you know, your child with, and this is only day six. I was horrified and even as you read it, you know, that day and the, where we were when she said this horrifies me. There's a few things that helps to know. We live three kilometres from the university, the main university in our state. So we're in a high socioeconomic area. Many of the children at this school are children of professors or PhD students from around the world. The school districts, school uh, has about 39 languages spoken in the area or in that, with its children. Does mm, interesting. So, you know, that's the first thing. The second was that at the end of the year, the previous year, we'd had um, a little interview with the teachers and I put my hand up and said, well, how do you cope with quiet little boys? And the teacher said, oh, we love those quiet little boys. And then this was the response. 
And so I was just horrified and I didn't know what to do. What do you do? Because you can't change the child. Right. It was just horrendous. It was really heart-rendering. And in terms of behavioral issues, then I'm assuming that you didn't describe that Nicholas had any of those. It seems like he was well-behaved, quiet boy. Is that right? He just froze. He froze. He couldn't do anything. So, and, and this was interesting. Nicholas looked dumb. So it doesn't matter how we treat him. What do you mean by that? Tell me a little bit more. He, Nicholas didn't respond to the teacher at all. He sat in the classroom and froze. So when the teacher gave a direction, he didn't move. He, it was like he was sitting in a, a, a brick and any of her directions just bounced off of him. So he wasn't even part of the class. So as far as the teacher said, you know, he just can't do a single thing. Hmm. And this was not at all the experience you had with your older son. No, 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 no. My older son is the absolute opposite, you know, and they're from the same parents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at the end of this chapter, then, you actually say this was your first taste of being an outsider to the education system. Can you expand on that and talk a little more about that? My son sat in the class for that whole year then. No one ever said to me, this child has a significant problem. They accepted that he didn't do anything. The teacher just shouted at him and there was no progress in anything. And I could do, I could only do limited work at home with him through that experience because he was traumatised by school. I didn't recognise that. But I am still disappointed that no one said to me, what's happening here in this situation is not right. They just said, mm, that's him, can't do anything, not particularly smart, doesn't matter what we do. So there are two sides to going on here. Hmm. And then by the end of first grade, did he have another evaluation? Did you get a chance yes. to talk to anybody about his progress? What was that like at the end of first grade? Well, that's when he gets evaluated by the school diagnostician. And, and again, he sat in the class. We sat with this one lady, one-to-one, -one, and basically refused to cooperate with her. And she took that test to mean this child has no strengths, he can read 10 words, he's got no spatial awareness, nothing he can do, and above all, Mrs Letchford, your son is just above intellectually impaired. And you see how the school system, he failed first grade, now we have a test to show why he failed, sets up failure on an ongoing failure. Yeah, and that was... So I don't know how it worked in Australia, but I know here in the United States, and that was at the time where any kid that was showing um, a discrepancy would yes. get special education services. So basically, yes. if your IQ is at average or above and you're not performing that way in the classroom, 
we're definitely going to give you some special ed services so you can perform to your p potential. But if you tested your IQ tested low, mm -hmm. well, you just, we're sorry, yeah. you just can't do it and we're not going to help you at all, right? The one thing we had from that was that Nicholas was to receive the services of a reading teacher four days a week, one-on-one, -on -one, 30 minutes a day. Okay. Yeah. And what was this like for you at home then? Because I know you describe, and we'll get to sort of some of the things that you tried to do, but um, as a parent of a first grade student who's traumatized by the schooling experience, it seems to me that it would be really difficult to, to try to extend learning time after school when he's already traumatized. I couldn't do anything. And on the one occasion or two occasions that I tried something with him and I took him to his bedroom and shut the door so all the other noise was away, you know, he must have had an okay day in school that day. And you just realise he's got no clue. He's got no idea what's going on. And I can't do anything with this now. Well, yeah, it, um, fortunately, there's a, a, there's a good ending to this. And so um, yeah. I'd like to start like moving into not the problem, but, you know, some of the solutions that you that you work towards. The thing I want to start with, and it feels like a left turn for our listeners, I'm sure, <laughs> but I want to talk about Nicholas's swimming experience because it feels to me like it was really eye opening. Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about that experience? Well, swimming is really important in Australia because or in Brisbane in particular, because it's subtropical and it's hot and everyone swims. Mm -hmm. So, and everyone has backyard pools and children drown. So the government mandated that schools must teach their children to swim. So there okay. are pools everywhere. So I know Nicholas is going to school and have to learn to swim. But when he does it the year before, the pool was cold and the teacher was only okay. Okay. And he wanted to get out of it. So the next year we go to the next suburb, which has a pool. And the lady said to me, you know, this guy teaches children children with cerebral palsy and all sorts of difficulties that would and the pool's heated <laughs> and we went to this pool and he got it put in a class and again the teacher gives directions Nicholas doesn't follow it and he's put on the side of the pool and the the old coach the older coach sees this and just says to Nicholas you come into my group and he knew what to say to Nicholas to get him to do things and it was eye-opening just to watch him do things just that little bit differently and to engage Nicholas. And at the end of our six weeks of swimming, he says to Nicholas, you swim the length of the pool. And Nicholas stands there and says, yeah, I'll swim the length of the pool, Mr Cusack, but you've got to stand in the middle to help me if I get in trouble. And Cusack said, I can do that for you, Nicholas. And he got in the pool and Nicholas swam down and swam the length of the pool for the very first time and got to the end and everyone cheered for him. That's just, that's amazing. So, I mean, six weeks experience, what did that do for Nicholas in terms of his self-confidence? Oh, I think that was just, it was a turning point for all of us that Mr. Mr. Cusack can teach him and Nicholas can learn. 
And that was a critical moment to say he's not completely off the scale. He can't learn anything. He can do things. And in the story, it was very important that we had someone and found someone like Cusack because otherwise you're going, what do we do now? But we had Cusack to say, mm, I can do this. So I was, I sent him a book and he responded. <laughs> um, and Nicholas continued to swim for a really long time after that. Did, is, isn't that right? Didn't he go to university in Texas? Am I right? School, high school. Yes, he oh, swam. high school. Yeah, and it was brilliant because, you know, high school in this country, you've got to find a little group, otherwise you can be an isolate. Yeah. And swimming gave Nicholas a really nice group of kids and they accepted him. Yeah. Yeah, That's... so fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing. And it see, I don't know if this is true or if uh, if it's not true, but it seems to me as I was reading your book that after that point it it was you were encouraged as well that you because you watched the swimming lessons happening that it 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 it, it seems like it changed something in in terms of your approach to what you wanted for Nicholas. Is that is that right? I, I spoke to a friend last week and she said, Lois, you made it sound too easy in the book. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to her, I think you're right. Because there was in me always this underlying panic. What am I going to do? How is my child going to survive in this world? Yeah. I think I felt a little bit of that in your opening when you, when you were you're waiting for Nicholas to respond to you <laughs> as it related to his <laughs> PhD work. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, yeah. um, but but you did then. It seemed you were pretty determined to find something or anything that would help him. Um, and can you describe just a couple of different things that you tried? Well, he went on to grade two with a new teacher and the teacher was absolutely wonderful. And she said, I'll help Nicholas. And she gave him a list of spelling words. They were rhyming words, at, bat, cat, sat, pat. And so Nicholas, I mean, Nicholas is diligent. And he came to me and he said, Mummy, I need help with my spelling words. I said, that's all right, Nicholas, we can do that. And I said, get out a piece of paper and we'll write them out, which is the first thing you think of, isn't it? And mm -hmm. I'll never forget it. You know, he sat at the table and I said, Nicholas, spell the word cat. And his shoulders were near his ears and he took his pencil and the pencil hovered above the paper and it stopped. It was then I realised he didn't even know where to start with this list of spelling words. He couldn't connect with the words, the letters, the sounds or anything. And I just watched him for a minute or two and just thought, I can't do anything in this space. And somewhere in my mind, Something had clicked and it said, use clay. So I said, Nicholas, let's go outside and just write your letters in clay. Now, this is the second interesting part. We worked for an hour to an hour and a half that evening 
writing our letters in clay. And we did the same thing for the next three days and for the next about five or six weeks, writing our spelling words in clay. And you know, I still have the spelling tests from grade two. And the first lot of spelling words he didn't get all right. He did about three or four and the teacher said, let it go because he wrote the word at and the first thing mm -hmm. he wrote down is the T, at, and he put T-A. Okay. Yeah, so he still hasn't got it, but he could. But by the second week and the third week, he's getting 10 out of 10 for his spelling words. Wow. And did that translate then into him being able to recognize those words in print? Yes. Yes, I think so. I yeah. couldn't be sure now in, in hindsight, but... Um, he could certainly spell them and see them. But, you know, there's a length of time here that is not afforded in the classroom. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. And and your friend that was talking to you about how you made it sound so I'm easy. So easy. <laughs> An hour and a half a day on a list of 10 spelling words, spelling words. is, yeah, that's significant. Ex yes. Yes, and you needed to, I needed to be a stay-at-home mum to, A, think about it and have that time to give him an hour and a half and not push him away and say, come on, speed up, you've got to do this quickly, because he can't. He can't go any faster. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, I'm sure you're, you're human too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how did you... I mean, how were you able to give him that persistent patience and that must have just been exhausting for you? It was. It, you've got it. You've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. It was thoroughly exhausting. But if it's exhausting for me, what was it like for him? And you're seeing something of his persistence. You know, he never gave up. He never complained. He never said anything. I can't or I do it. He just did it with me. So you've got this combination of an extraordinary child who's willing to go to extreme lengths to learn the stuff that everyone finds with ease, learns with ease. Was there any part of his schooling experience that came a little bit easier to him? Um, you know, sometimes... So for my own son, who really struggled with reading, um, he uh, enjoyed other elements of the schooling experience. So did Nicholas have that to draw on? No, no, he had nothing. And it took a long time. It really took until we were in Texas for that to happen. Hmm. So early years, and even today, you know, he would say, I had nothing in early, early years. I had no strengths. I, I couldn't do anything well. Hmm. But he had persistence and the willingness, he had, willingness yes. to do yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so finding some success with them at home, you really like worked hard and, and I mean, again, you make it sound easy, but it seems to me that you were looking for books or external support outside of the, you know, the education or schooling experience. So you really did seek out a lot of different, uh, a lot of different places, right? Yes. And I was in touch with the specific learning de 
uh, people spelled in Queensland to get some assistance and with someone else who had written a newspaper article. And in fact, you know, it was those people who suggested I test him. It wasn't the school saying this kid needs support. It was me driving it, saying, what else do I have to do? You know, because again, my panic was, what is going to happen to this child long term? Yeah. You know, he can't do a thing. Hmm. And that seems to be here in the United States too, um, the dyslexia movement has really, is really a grassroots movement and started with parents, right? It yes. started with parents, parents. to say, yes. wait, we yeah. yeah, yeah, we That's need right. something different. Yeah. Yes. And it's a little disappointing to me that even now, how much we know about dyslexia and other learning disabilities, I know we're continuing to learn, but um, in my education experience or my undergrad experience as an elementary, you know, potential elementary teacher, teacher. I had, yeah, I've had very, I had almost zero yes. classwork or coursework, much yes. less about how to teach reading the appropriate way. But then yes. what do you do with, with students that, you know, need a different kind of, of teaching experience or learning experience? I'll come back to that question on another time because I've okay. got some answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back to Nicholas's experience. And there was a point where you actually talked with a guidance counselor. So this is a guidance counselor, a specialized position within the school who actually said to you, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. What was the context of that conversation? Well, that happened after we had had six months away from school. So I homeschooled Nicholas for the six months when we were in Oxford, England. And that's a whole turning point, which I didn't realise was going to be so important. So I started in Oxford with this group of, with this series of books called Success for All, and they were a failure. He couldn't do it. There were no pictures, which is significant. Pictures are crucial and there were no pictures. They were words on a page and he couldn't do it. And my mother-in-law was with me and she said, Lois, make learning fun. And so mm. I threw those books away and, and I had a lot of fun writing about tearing them up and beating them to the worms. <laughs> and so then I, you know, I'm built, I've got a blank slate. And when you've got a blank slate, you have to start searching for results. You've got to do something. So I started to write these very simple poems and the poetry was fun and my mother-in-law and Nicholas illustrated them. So we're doing multi-sensory activities, but also based in language. And the poetry just exploded and ended up tapping into Nicholas's curiosity. And I wrote poems about Captain Cook only because the double O comes up and you've got rhyming words, cook, book and book. Right that I wrote this poem Captain Cook had a notion there's a gap in the map in the great big ocean he took a look without the help of any book hoping to find a quiet little nook now the beauty of poetry is that every word counts and there's this simple four-line poem that opens a world that's enormous <laughs> and we went searching for maps and we found a map printed in 1500 and I said to Nicholas look Nicholas there's a gap in the map there's no Australia 
And then he started to ask questions. Who came before Captain Cook? And I said, oh, that's easy. That's Christopher Columbus. And then he said, and who came before Columbus? And that question threw me because I thought, you know, there's only one answer because I had never even thought about who came before Columbus. <laughs> right. So, and this boy does not have a low IQ. That was, you know, in my mind, that was a turning point to me to say, you know, this whole thing is, is not right. So I went back to Australia and saw this lady and I, I was excited by all that we had learned, panicked but still excited. And I said, Nicholas asked Captain Cook's right. original map. She asked this. And she said to me, well, I've spoken to the reading teacher and he's gone backwards. And he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. Wow. You, know, you can't make I this mean, stuff up. <laughs> yeah, you can't. But what's, what's interesting about that, and I want to go back to, so you went from Australia to Oxford, yeah. and I think you went for you, because of your yeah. husband, right? And so you're in Oxford surrounded by, like, all this you know, rich knowledge and rich history. And so you used a poem and you used a poem that had some structure of yes. words. So, you know, the, the sounds, yes. the sound patterns, yes. and it led him to want to explore more about Captain yes. Cook or the, like the knowledge of yes. that all, where all of this is coming yes. from. Yeah. Yes. And so you go back to Australia, super excited about that. And that must've been, I mean, talk about like heart-wrenching <laughs> for you like feel like a failure as a parent because now your kid is excited about captain cook and maps and all these other things and to hear that he's the worst child uh well actually you know even then what she did was gave me the words i needed to say don't expect him to learn like everyone else you know, and it's, it really gave me a lens. How do we see this child? Well, is he just a dumb kid? Or do we see a child who's got this incredible thinking? How am I going to teach them? Yeah. Oh, and that's yeah. the difference. Yeah, and so, you know, your, your book sort of, and I don't want to give it away for our listeners because I want them to go and buy this memoir because it is super amazing. Um, but by the end of, by the end of this, and you alluded to this at the beginning of the conversation, by the end of all of this struggle, Nicholas has got his PhD and what is he doing now? He is working as a mathematical modeler for, with, um, health economics. So he shifted from engineering to mathematics to health economics. So he's still in Oxford. He's married and and working. So far, so good. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot more to that. I mean, it's a pretty for, you know, for a student that doesn't struggle in school to, you know, have that kind of accomplishment in terms of academics and then and then career is amazing. Yes but for one that what struggled all the way through. Um, it seems like this book was, it, it, 
I want to say a major accomplishment in, in a way that it's a symbol of a major accomplishment, both for you and for Nicholas. Um, how did how did the writing of this book feel like a success for you specifically? Well, I'm as dyslexic as they come. <laughs> and that's and what happens when you're dyslexic, particularly for my age, is you're just left to sit in the bottom of the class. And you, you don't get the teaching and you don't get the practice you need to be successful, to do well. So I struggled all the way through school, just above the bottom of the class, enough to get myself through college and through, you know, this. But everything was an enormous struggle for me, which was never acknowledged. So for me to then sit down and write a book was, you know, a major deal. And I just started to write it. And then I went to writing classes. And it's while I was at one of these writing classes, another young girl was there and her edits were phenomenal. In fact, she was the only one who was good at it. And she said, if you want me to help you, let me know. And I jumped at the opportunity and it was working with her that allowed me to put my story down to a book that you want to read. So it was, I needed a huge amount of effort coach and a mentor to help me drive through the book and at one stage I wrote you know my husband's really smart and I'm not and she said I'm not allowing you to say that <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to allow you to say that either <laughs> so that you know so it was an incredible experience and really you know quite an, a, an achievement to do what I yeah yeah and why was it important for you to get this story down on paper when children fail at the end of first grade, the, the prognosis is horrendous. And, you know, then it becomes really personal. You know, 25 years later, my son has a PhD. How easily he could have fallen off the rails. How easily the school could have said, he can't, he can't, he can't, he can't. He's not smart. Stop being silly, you know. And the problem, there's a number of problems. One is school has all the documentation. We are right you are wrong. Your child is dumb. Don't tell us anything else. So you've got that conflict going on. And as I said in the beginning, my son's learning happened by accident. No child's learning should happen by accident. And then you've got this kid who's six and you think is dumb, 25 years later has a PhD. It's the same child. Right. You know, we've, we've got to stop seeing these dumb children as dumb. And as I keep saying... We've got to see them as rocket scientists. How are we going to teach them? We've got to change the re our perspective. We've got to reframe that child. And even, I, you know, then I get quite passionate. The testing, I think, of children actually puts us down a rabbit hole because we can say this child is da-da-da-da. And what it stops us doing is it stops us looking at the teaching. What else do we as teachers and what else do we as a school have to do to help this child go from A to Z. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a real responsibility and it's a real shift of thinking to say that yes. it's not the child's yes. fault and how can we responsibility. Take responsibility to be the adult. Exactly. Because yeah. you know, somewhere along the line, you in here you've said and at the end of grade one for Nicholas, how did that end? And you know, once you finish this, we've got to come back to that. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And yeah, um, 
Well, let's go back to talking about the end of grade one or why grade one is so important. What would you like to say about that? I was with my son last year and I really didn't know what happened in the classroom. I had little hints that things weren't good, but I really didn't know because I never saw it completely. Mm -hmm. And I said to Nicholas last year, I said, Nick, what happened in grade one? Now, my son holds a PhD. He's confident, he's articulate, he can do all this stuff. And he sat on the chair and he cried. And he mm. could not put a single sentence together. No words came out of his mouth. And I realised this year was traumatic for him and it's left him, he's put that year in a box and he shut it and he's locked it and he doesn't want to open it because that's how bad it was. Yeah, that's heart-wrenching. Yes. That's yes. heart-wrenching. Yes. You know, and trauma, to, the trauma to be addressed, it's got to be acknowledged. And because right. he's done so well since, you know, we've lo he's locked it away and we haven't locked, but it's there and it, it's not going to take much to have that flood open somewhere down the track. So somewhere we are all going to have to address that and it's not going to be an easy time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just so appreciate you opening up and being vulnerable with your experience uh, and, you know, being willing to document that experience so others can be reminded of the important commitment we make as educators to each one of those students in our classrooms. Susan, this has been incredible so, talking to you. It's been very, really, really so much fun. And, you know, as we sort of close this up, if you were going to give our listeners just one thing to take away, one thing you want them to learn or think about or reflect about, what would that be? Believe in your child. Believe they are capable of anything and tell them that. Yeah. Lois, thank you so much for joining. And for our listeners, we'll be linking um, the book in our show notes so that they'll have access to it. So thank you so thank much. Thank you, Susan. We're so grateful to our amazing guest today and to all of you making a difference in the lives of students every single day. Be sure to check the show notes for resource links from today's podcast. And we want to hear your stories and successes. Follow us on Facebook at Science of Reading, the community, or send an email to sormatters at amplify.com. Tell us what guests you think we should book or tell us about the research that really excites you. And be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Susan Lambert from Amplify Education.